This afternoon's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 32. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question, if you answer me. I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Well, good afternoon. It's great to see you all here. Can I add my welcome to Claire's, if you've joined us since the beginning. Uh, We're in the middle of a three-part series in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 21. You may have seen before Christmas uh, that... A confession by Britain's most notorious spy, Kim Philby, was finally declassified. It was written in January 1963, when the senior MI6 agent was presented with evidence that he'd been a Russian spy for 30 years. It was a very simple two-page document, yellow with age and tattered with repeated handling. But even Ben McIntyre, the Times journalist who admits that he spent more time inside Philby's head than is comfortable, even he said that the experience of seeing the note was eerie. Even half a century on, Philby's extraordinary treachery has the power to shock us. He promised to serve king and country, but he did the exact opposite and with terrible consequences. His actions cost the lives of hundreds, possibly thousands of people. And his story has haunted the uh, authorities because it's, um, it's thought that a key reason that he wasn't caught earlier was that he was such a respected member of the establishment. Westminster School, Cambridge, the right club, the right friends, apparently above reproach. And there's a shocking story of treachery and and terrible consequences in this passage that we've just had read today. Because in this passage, the members of the establishment, the members of the religious establishment of Jesus' times, the very ones who you would expect to recognize God's Son and welcome him, in fact, do the exact opposite. They appear to be, on the surface, the ones saying to God, yes, we will serve you. But in fact, all along, they are actually saying, No, we won't. 
It's, it is a shocking rejection, and the, and the passage teaches us also, I think, that it has shocking consequences. So those are the two things I just want us to reflect on today. The shocking rejection we see in this passage and, and the shocking consequences of doing so. The shocking rejection comes in those first verses, verses 23 to um, 27, if you look back at the, the passage. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus has just made this dramatic entry into uh, Jerusalem. Vast crowds have accompanied him going into the city, and they've, they've hailed him as the long-promised Messiah, the everlasting king uh, of the whole world, and, and he has accepted their praise. And he's also done this very public act of judgment on the corrupt religion of the temple courts, and he's healed people there. And in this passage, we pick, we pick up the action immediately, the very next day, where Jesus returns to the temple courts, and very quickly he is confronted by the, the chief priests uh, and the religious elders. And they want to know, by what authority is he doing these things? Which, on the surface, seems a very understandable question, doesn't it? Receiving the messianic praise of the crowds, clearing out the temple courts, these are all massive claims to divine authority. And he hasn't even got basic level official accreditation from rabbinic school. But wait a moment. The religious establishment have actually already witnessed him do all sorts of miracles that we've seen up until this point in Matthew's gospel, demonstrating his authority. And interestingly, you see at several episodes when this happens, they don't deny that the miracles take place, but they actually say that, the, that Jesus is doing these miracles by evil powers. So actually their question here about where's his authority come from is actually a sham question. They've already made up his, their minds about him. We've seen that in the rest of the Gospel. The only reason they ask the question is to get him to say something in public that's going to uh, give them a reason to arrest him. And that's why Jesus doesn't answer their question. It's not just a kind of today program type tactic. Uh, he poses a question back to them in verse 25. I, I, I suspect many a politician would have uh, loved to have been able to pose a question back to John Humphreys et al. over the years. Uh, and he actually exposes straight away their real agenda in, in asking the question. And he does it by asking about John the Baptist. And I was wondering to myself uh, this week, why is why doesn't Jesus just ask them a question about his own ministry? Why does he ask them about John the Baptist's ministry? And I, I think it's because in asking them about John's ministry, he, he's going to expose that they reject both Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministry for the same underlying reason. And it's that they, they object to the content of what both of them are teaching. So back in chapter 3, the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, uh, when John is baptising down by the Jordan... A delegation gets sent uh, by the religious authorities in Jerusalem to visit John the Baptist and give him a kind of Ofsted-style religious inspection. And um, John, John responds quite strongly to this visitation by calling them a brood of vipers, uh, which is perhaps not the best way to treat an Ofsted inspection if you've got one coming up soon. Um, he also says not to trust arrogantly in the fact that they are descended from Abraham, but instead to repent of their sins, just like everybody else. Also, back in chapter 15, uh, Jesus has a similar kind of dialogue with the religious leaders and tells them 
that they're hypocrites, that they're paying outward lip service to God, but not repenting of the sin that's in their hearts that can't be just washed away by ceremonial washing. So in reaction to this teaching, they're opposed to both John and Jesus. So Jesus knows that they're not going to say John the Baptist's ministry is from heaven. Otherwise, uh, they'd be accepting that John the Baptist has been right in in his judgment of them. But equally, you'll notice, they haven't got the guts to say that his ministry is merely human either. Because in verse 26, they don't want to lose the approval of the crowds. So there we have it. It's, this, it's a religion of external show, more interested in status and approval of others than in turning to God in repentance for sins. Their problem wasn't lack of evidence for his authority. Their problem was they just didn't like the content of what John and Jesus were preaching. So that's why he gives them this, this answer in verse 27. To paraphrase, there's no point in giving you an answer about my authority because you've already made up your mind about me and about John the Baptist. All you're interested in is your own reputation and finding a way to arrest me. It's a pretty shocking judgment by Jesus. And this, this is the religious establishment of his time. And, and they reject him and John because of what they teach. And it should profoundly shock us that the religious establishment of Jesus' day did largely reject him. Certainly in, his, uh, certainly in his earthly ministry before he went to his death. So how do we avoid making the same mistake ourselves? Because let's face it, if the, if the religious establishment of Jesus' time can make the mistake, then we, we certainly can. Is, so I'll just pose a few questions to you this Tuesday lunchtime. Is there something about the message of Jesus that you hold on to as a kind of reason to reject him, perhaps? Is it these very strong words that he uses in the gospel to describe the sin that comes out of our hearts and that no amount of religious observance or good deeds is going to wash it away? Because that's what offended the religious authorities of the time. Or is it perhaps this desire for status and approval of people? Because let's face it, being a follower of Jesus Christ in 21st century Britain it's not exactly the kind of culturally mainstream thing to do. There might be all sorts of other reasons um, that you're rubbing up against. So, but can I urge us not to make that same mistake that the religious leaders make, of rejecting Jesus because we find the message a bit uncomfortable and, and challenging. But instead, let's follow the evidence about who he is and follow it where it leads. Because the consequences of how we respond to him are really, really important. And this is the second point. This is why he tells that parable in the second half of the passage, the the consequences of rejecting him in verses 28 to 32. And the point of this little parable is to show that membership of God's kingdom depends on how we actually respond to the words of, of Jesus. And you get two different types of response profiled here. One is affirmed and one is condemned. So the first son in the parable says uh, no to his father's command to work in his vineyard, but then subsequently changes his mind. In verse 31, this first son is applauded for changing his mind and doing his father's will. 
And it's clear from Jesus' application of the parable to real life in verses 32 and 33 that follow that the tax collectors and prostitutes are real-life examples of this changing of mind, real-life examples of this first son. And tax collectors and prostitutes in that society were the lowest of the low. Uh, Tax collectors in particular were, were corrupt and extorted more money from people than what they were supposed to, and they were serving the occupying rulers, the Romans. They were, they were hated and really, along with prostitutes, was, they were seen as, basically, if you were to pit anybody of having zero chance of being in God's kingdom, it was them. But here comes the shock at the end of verse 31 when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. He uses the example of the tax collectors and prostitutes for, sh- for shock value to make it crystal clear that entry into the kingdom is not based on how much of a good life you've led or how much you've attended synagogue or church. So again, let's just stop for a moment and think about that for ourselves. Because actually, isn't, that, isn't it the most wonderful news you've ever heard in your life? That God doesn't actually look at our track record when he forgives us. All he asks us to do is to say sorry for our sin and to believe in Christ that he died to take it away. He effectively says to us, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, come into my kingdom. So is God saying that to you this very day? Perhaps there's something that only you know about that's weighed on you for years, decades even perhaps, and Perhaps you doubt in your heart of hearts whether God can really forgive you for it. Well, do you know that there is no sin that God cannot forgive? And if you disagree with that, you are saying that when God became a man to die for our sins, he didn't do the job properly. There's a wonderful moment in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where pilgrim finally arrives at the cross of Jesus Christ and when he gets there he's been carrying this great weight of sin on his back and finally uh, it falls off his back at the foot of the cross. It's a wonderful picture of where to take our sin. So if you're carrying the weight of sin on your own back this afternoon let it fall off your back at the foot of of the cross of Christ and believe in Christ for his forgiveness. But what about that's the second son? Because he speaks a very confident, I go, sir, to his father. But they actually turn out to be empty words. He never actually goes to work in his father's vineyard. And Jesus then applies this directly to the chief priests and the elders in verse 32. Just like Philby's political treachery, Their whole religious life is a sham. There's a show of yes in their religion, but in reality, they're saying no to God. And it's a terrible shock in verse 31. Jesus says the consequences of them refusing to believe John's message of repentance is that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom before them. And I think the context requires us to understand that before them is They're not just going in behind the tax collectors and prostitutes, but they are actually forfeiting their place. It's really, really sobering stuff, unless they actually obey the words of Jesus and repent 
and believe. This is the terrifying consequence of religion. It's dangerous. It keeps people out of God's kingdom. And I think all of us are in constant danger of being like the chief priests and scribes in this passage. Because, let's face it, religion does come quite naturally to us. Going to church on a Sunday or on a chapel on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, receiving communion, reading our Bibles, praying, giving money to the church and, and good causes. All those are good things, but they don't actually qualify us for entry into God's kingdom. We've got to get the cart and the horse uh, in the right order. So in the, in the Christian message, the horse is God's free, unmerited forgiveness because Christ died for us. All we need to do is acknowledge our sin to God and receive his forgiveness. And in response to that grace, God does call us to live a life of loving him and loving others. And that is the cart that follows behind the horse. It's really crucial that we don't put the cart of Christian service before the horse of God's grace, because that is religion. And Jesus says here in clearest possible terms that it will end up excluding us from the kingdom of God. So as I close, how do we make sure we don't make that same mistake of the chief priests and elders, of loudly saying yes to God, but in reality refusing to repent and believe in Christ? It's very simple. Will we listen to the words of Jesus, to the words of John the Baptist? Will we have the humility to admit our sin? Will we admit that we, can't, we, can't, we simply can't earn our forgiveness before God? Will we believe that Christ came to give his life in payment as a ransom for those sins upon the cross? Why don't we ask for God's help to do that now as, um, as, I, as I pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. It's very challenging. <coughs> Challenges at our hearts that we naturally veer towards religion and, and uh, trying to earn your favour in our own strength. So we pray that we'd he heed the warning of, of not doing that. But also hear the wonderful the wonderful news of your grace to us, your free, unmerited, undeserved forgiveness in Christ. That Christ has made it possible for us to be completely forgiven. So pray that you might enable us to respond to you for the first time or, uh, or again as we keep coming back to you for your mercy. And that in response you would turn us outwards. To, uh, to go out from here, outwards from ourselves, to go and love, love others and, and uh, be that difference uh, in this world, in the work that we're doing today, in this place and further beyond. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.